0: Hey, thanks for listening to the Bellevue Christian Church Podcast. We're a church in Bellevue, Pennsylvania, where ordinary people are learning to live everyday life like Jesus. We believe that one way to learn that life is by engaging with an ancient but active collection of books called the Bible every single week. If this teaching leaves you with a question about the content or a story of what God is doing in your life, please send a message to hello at bellevuechristian.church because we'd love to hear from you. Good morning. My name is Austin. I'm one of the pastors here at Bellevue Christian Church. I'm so glad that you could join us today. This morning, I want to start by uh, I want us to imagine something for a second. I want us to imagine that next week we decide to start hosting church services somewhere else, right? You know, we've been here a hundred years, and you know it's been good. It's, but we've been doing some demographic research, and we've decided maybe there are some other places we could try. And so we decide we're going to start hosting services at the Pittsburgh Zoo. And so we've done some research. We decided if we go to the Pittsburgh Zoo and then we have after service, they could explore the African Savannah and all these other things. Maybe be good for guests and families, things like that. So starting next week, you guys are going to be fighting traffic on 28 to get to the zoo. And so we get to the zoo. You park a mile away, which is the worst part about the zoo. It's really far. And you walk really far uh, to, to the entrance. You walk through the entrance. And we've gotten actually special permission to host our church services actually right in the middle of the elephant exhibit. And So, they they never granted this to a church before, but they're like, We've heard about the Christian Church. You guys are legendary. You guys have Pastor Chuck. We love you guys. Why don't you guys? We're going to give you the elephant exhibit to host your services right inside. And so, you walk in with your family and you bring some guests with you because you're like, We're at the zoo. It's going to be a lot of fun. And so, you walk back to the zoo exhibit, and your friends realize that you're actually going into the elephant exhibit. And they're like, Bro, I'm out. You know, I'm just going to stand outside this double pane glass where it's safe. I'm not going in there. And you're like, No, it's fine. And so, you go in and you you take a seat, and you know, you get a bulletin from a zookeeper, those kinds of things, and you're sitting down, we've set up some chairs, we try to set it up like a normal church service, as normal as we can be for being in an elephant exhibit, and we start into the songs, and we find out, man, elephants love music, so they sort of of creep around, you know, these big African elephants, 13,000 pounds, and so they're coming in to join into the worship, they're all about singing in the victory, so they're coming in, they're getting close, they're getting snuggly, and then we we keep going with the service, we get to moments of hospitality, we do elephant rides, the whole Streza family is on an elephant elephant, you know, riding around, and you know, it's a lot of fun. Nobody gets squished yet, and so we, we come back in, and we sit down, and we keep going with our songs. We get to the sermon, and you guys are trying real hard to be attentive. You're like trying to focus, but you're like also keeping your eye on the 13,000 pound beast right near you, and you can feel like some trunk kind of sniffing at your, your ear. Some of you guys wear like a strong perfume, and it's like attracting some of the elephants, and you're getting a little nervous, but nonetheless, you try to pay attention. So then we get through that, and we go through communion. We go through the rest of the songs. We We get to the end, to the benediction, everybody's excited, and we're like, man, let's do this every week. You know, we made it through without any major catastrophes, but then, then Sam makes the mistake of announcing snack time. And elephants love snack time. And so they, you know, they, you know, they, they don't know that snack time, but they smell the snacks. And so they, they work their way up to the snacks. There's a stampede of a family of elephants and your children all headed to the snacks at the same time. And so they're all trying to avoid each other. They eat up the snacks and they drink all the coffee. And then you're trying to find your kids amidst a herd of caffeinated elephants. And we decide maybe this isn't what we want to do every week. And so we decide, okay, this isn't, we don't want to do this maybe at the, at the zoo every week. Um, from here on, maybe we'll just do it for this one special week. I want to clarify, we are not actually going to have services at the zoo starting next week. I've learned to clarify things in this church because sometimes we're a little dense. And uh, one time I was announcing that we were going uh, we to fast and pray about purchasing this house next door for, for kids church. And uh, I made a joke saying we were going to purchase it for me and Julie to live in. And six months later, Justin asked me when we were moving into that house. That was we, we weren't moving in. It was a joke. And so we're not actually going to host services there. But as I was thinking about this sermon series and where we're headed, and one of the things that I started to realize is that sometimes a church can feel a little bit like that. Sometimes a church can feel a little bit like an elephant exhibit instead of a church. You've probably heard the phrase elephant in the room. Everybody familiar with that phrase, elephant in the room? All right, so if there's an elephant in the room, it's usually something that everybody is aware of, but nobody wants to uh, acknowledge. Something that we all are thinking about, but nobody wants to start the conversation about. Another way that we could put it is this, that we'll kind of be thinking about it throughout the series. An elephant in the room or an elephant in the church is an uncomfortable conversation that nobody wants to start. An elephant in the room is an uncomfortable conversation that nobody wants to start. And believe it or not, there are plenty of those in the church. There are lots of elephants in the church. In fact, again, we tend to feel a little bit like an elephant exhibit. Things we need to talk about, but stuff nobody wants to address. In fact, there's some elephants sitting in the pew, as long as they didn't get taken by children after last service. And we'll talk about those, and we'll address those in just a little bit. And uh, when you know, well, here's what happens, though. When we refuse to talk about some of these elephants in the room, Especially elephants in the church. The church can start to become a place where people don't want to come into, just like an elephant exhibit, right? You know, if we're insiders, if we're inside the elephant exhibit, we're constantly under threat of getting squished. But for an outsider, they're like, I'm not coming in. I'm just going to watch this thing unfold through the glass. And so the church becomes entertaining for outsiders, but not something that they want to be a part of. And so for insiders, we're constantly in threat of getting squished and uh, of getting in trouble. And so one of the things I want to say though is that we're not the first church to have elephants in the church. We're not the first church to have problems and issues and uncomfortable topics that nobody wants to talk about. If you went to any church in this city, no matter how big or small, they've got issues that, they don't, that they're probably not addressing or talking about. If you go through church history, if you look at some of the movements through church history, you see some of the elephants that nobody was addressing. Some of these issues and problems and topics that were too uncomfortable to bring up. And if you go all the way back to the New Testament, what you find is that many of the letters written by a man named Paul were written to churches that were dealing with elephants That nobody wanted to talk about. And in fact, probably no more than the church in the city of Corinth, where Paul wrote at least two letters, probably more, called 1 and 2 Corinthians. And in 1 Corinthians, he deals with a fair amount of elephants in that church. So this week we're actually going to start a new series called Elephants in the Church. And it's a series of uncomfortable conversations in 1 Corinthians. It's a series where we're going to be trying to talk about the things that we normally don't talk a lot about. Where we acknowledge some of the things that a lot of us are aware of but nobody seems to start the conversation about. Where we begin to address some of the elephants in the church. And we're going to be following the lead of 1 Corinthians. So we're not just going to we're going to set some parameters on this and we're going to try to see what elephants do we see in 1 Corinthians that we also see in the life of our church. So if you have a Bible this morning, why don't you open up to 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verses 1 through 11. It's going to be on page uh, 1128, page 1128. Um, if you've never opened a Bible before, if you don't have a Bible, you can go online. There's, a, there's an app called YouVersion, Y-O-U-Version. You can download and read the Bible there. You can go to BibleGateway.com and follow along. And I just want to mention right now that it's, it's a brand new year, and some of you aren't used to reading the Bible. We always preach from the Word of God here, and we know that for some of us, this is the only chance a week where we have to get into the Word of God, so we always want to preach from the Bible here. But we also want to encourage you to start a habit of reading the Word of God by, on your own as well, or in community. And so if you don't have a habit of reading the Bible, I encourage you to start, whether it's, um, there's some research that's just come out that says one of the top ways to grow spiritually, not, not, not one of the, the top way to grow spiritually this year is to read your Bible. When they do data of how people grew, it's often through Bible reading, that's the main factor. So whether you're listening to the Bible or reading it, whether you're reading a few verses a day or a lot... Bible reading is pivotal to growing spiritually, which is why we're going to engage with it. For now, why don't you just leave that open on your lap. We're going to pray, and then we're going to talk a little bit about Corinth. Jesus, thank you for gathering us here this morning. We're not here by accident. We're not here by mistake. We're not here because we made a, you know, because we we're just looking for a place to be this morning. We're here because you drew us here, Lord. We believe your Holy Spirit is active, Lord. Your hand is upon us. Your hand is upon Pittsburgh, and you are drawing people into the life of your churches here, including ours. And Lord, we know that when we open the Bible, you speak to us. That when we we preach from this word, Lord, you, Jesus, the true word of God, meet us. You challenge us. You convict us. Lord, your word is not old and ancient. It is living and new and active and fresh and relevant. And so, Lord, we pray that as we look at 1 Corinthians, you begin to speak to us right here at Bellevue Christian Church. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So let's talk a little bit about Corinth. Corinth was a city of about 70 to 80,000 people, which is about 10 times the population of Bellevue. It's a little smaller than the population of the north side. And so you have about 70 to 80,000 people living in this ancient city of Corinth. It was in, uh, it, was, it was part of the, at this point, it was part of the Roman Empire. Paul was writing this letter about 20 years after Jesus rose from the dead. So it's about 50, um, between 50 and 60 AD that he is writing this letter. Um, but now this is what it looks like nowadays. It's in modern day Greece. It's not looking too great great, but this is sort of a, you can kind of see a shadow of of sort of its one-time greatness, and it was a great city. Um, In fact, it's a city that there are a lot of ways that it's kind of like the city of Pittsburgh. Um, Whenever I'm studying about an ancient city or reading an ancient letter, I like to see what ways are it similar to where we are today, and I want to mention just four ways that Corinth and Pittsburgh are a little bit like one another. The first is that they both experienced years of decline and years of revival, that Corinth was actually decimated about 150 years before Jesus was born. And then about 50 years before Jesus was born, Emperor Julius Caesar ordered that it would be rebuilt. And so it was rebuilt, and, it, and he, he, put a, he sent a bunch, of Roman, uh, a bunch of the Roman population to live there. And so it, sort of, it totally revived. And when you look at the history of Pittsburgh as well, Pittsburgh grew, grew, grew until about the mid-20th century. And then it experienced a season of decline. Um, many people still have an image of Pittsburgh that matches what Pittsburgh was in the 70s and 80s. And, you know, if we talk to somebody from not around here, where thousands of people left, which is why you can find Steeler bars all over the world, including Rome. There's probably one in Corinth. And you, so there's people that migrated to all over the world. And then if you go back now the past 20 years, people have started to migrate back to Pittsburgh. People have moved here. There's lots of jobs opening. There's lots of industries. And so it's experiencing a kind of revival, which is why when the recession came in the mid-2000s, it didn't affect Pittsburgh as it did lots of other places, because, or it did affect us, but not in the same way, because we'd already been through our own season of decline both are commercial centers as well Corinth was a place that sat on something called an isthmus, which was on my list of forbidden words when I had a lisp growing up. I didn't say that word. It was a very hard word to say. But it's on an isthmus, which is a sort of strip of land that if you were a boat, you would sail around that thing. Or if you're Corinth, you put yourself right on the middle of the isthmus, and you put harbors on both sides so that a boat can stop at one harbor, unload all of their stuff, carry it through the city, stay a few nights, have some drinks, and then go and put stuff on the the other boat, on the other harbor, so that you can sail along. And it saves you time, It saves you some dangers. And so it was a major thoroughfare. People were going through there all the time. And Pittsburgh, historically, was built on three rivers, not just for military purposes, but also for trade purposes. Pittsburgh has been right at a a, a convenient spot for lots of things to happen. And in the past 30 to 50 years, we've seen the rise of health industries. We've seen the rise of education. We've seen the rise of tech industries in this city. So it's becoming very much of that. It's also a tourist center, uh, a very specific kind of sports tourism there was, uh, because they they had this thing, this very Olympic-style games held in Corinth called the Ismithian Games. And that's why, and probably why, if you read through 1 Corinthians, you see Paul using athletic imagery sometimes. And he's probably referring to this fact that people are aware of athletics, they get athletics in Corinth, so he's going to refer to it a couple different times. Pittsburgh, also famous for sports. I don't know if you've heard that. We have the Steelers, we have the Pirates, we have one more team, the Penguins, and we also have the Riverhounds. Don't forget about them. I feel like they kind of get left out a lot. I think we need to support them a little bit more. And so that creates lots of part-time work. Lots of people are coming into the city for this reason. And finally, it's a magnet for the ambitious, which is what cities tend to be. Um, Corinth was where people wanted to move if you wanted to climb the social ladder, if you wanted to have more opportunities. And Pittsburgh, like many cities, is where people often move if they want to have more opportunities, bigger networks, better chance for pay raises, things like that. The city is where you want to live. So it tends to attract socially ambitious people. Which is probably why Paul decided to plant a church there. right? Paul was following the leadership of the Holy Spirit when he was starting churches all over the Mediterranean world. But he was also following some common sense. And he said, look... Corinth seems to be in a good place. And so he goes there and he plants his church. And you can read more about that in Acts chapter 18. He leverages this network that he builds because he's a tradesman. He's a tent maker. Paul isn't just a preacher all the time. He has a normal job and he's working that. And he has a LinkedIn profile and he has Priscilla and Aquila on it. And he leverages them and he builds this network. And he he finds ways to get into all these different social circles that he normally wouldn't have access to. And so he gets to all these different people and he begins to start a church there as he's preaching the gospel. He gets lots of hate mail. He gets lots of protesters. But he also starts a couple little churches in Corinth. In fact, the churches probably looked a little bit more like our discipleship communities that we have at our church and less like what we're doing right now. Um, They wouldn't have had buildings yet at the time. They would have probably been meeting in homes. Um, some of the wealthier members of the church in Corinth would have had bigger homes. And so they would have probably hosted about 50 people or so in their homes. They had big courtyards as well um, for church. So families uh, across genders, across ages, across cultures, across classes. All kinds of people were gathering into these churches. And there were probably a couple of these little churches scattered throughout Corinth. Okay, And, so there's, and Paul planted these and left this little network of churches in Corinth. He stays there eight, 18 months. He moves on. He goes to do some other things, some more church planning. A couple years later, he starts to hear that there are some things going on in Corinth. And he cares about this, right? He planted this church. It's very dear to his heart. These are children to him. He, he raised this up. He feels invested in them. And so he begins to exchange some letters with them and to help them through some of the things that they're going through. And that's one of those letters is what I've had you open to in First Corinthians. And he starts off this letter pretty well. I want to ask you, first of all, though, how many of you have ever had an experience where you've had what you call a compliment sandwich, where somebody has complimented you, and then you're just waiting, and then here comes the critique, and then they end with a compliment to make up for it. Anybody had that experience? Maybe at work, maybe in your family, maybe with a spouse, you've tried it on your children. Uh, Paul does that, uh, but his compliment sandwich is more like a permane sandwich. There's like a little bit of bread on the end. And then it's packed with critique. There's like, there's the critique of the slaw, there's the fries, there's the meat, there's ketchup. Some of you put eggs, who puts eggs on their primani? Anybody? All right, yeah, I know, we'll hang out sometime. And so he just packs this full of critique. It starts well, and then it's just tons of critique. And so let's read, let's read how it starts. And we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I'll put it up on the screen for us as well. It says this, and this is how Paul tends to start his letter. He starts with his name. He says, Paul, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. And the word apostle just means somebody who sent or a missionary or f- had been called by God to go start some things. And our brother Sosthenes. And then he writes to the church of God in Corinth. So this little network of churches in Corinth, he's writing to them. And he says, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace and peace to you from God our Father. In the Lord Jesus Christ, it starts off pretty well, and he continues. It's, it, this is like if you read a lot of other Paul's other letters, this is how they tend to start. He starts with this: "Here's who I am. Here's who you are. Here's what God has done for you. Grace and peace." And then he starts to tell them how he's thanking God for them, and that's what he does next. He says, "I always thank my God for you because of His grace given you in Christ Jesus." For in him you have been enriched in every way with all kinds of speech and with all knowledge. God thus confirming our testimony about Christ among you. Therefore you do not lack any spiritual gift as you eagerly wait for our Lord Jesus Christ to be revealed. He will also keep you firm to the end so that you will be blameless on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful who has called you into fellowship with his son Jesus Christ our Lord right? At this point, they don't realize they're in a compliment sandwich. They just think they're in like a compliment, just like all bread. They're like, this is great. This is going really well. Compliment sandwich stuff hasn't been developed yet. And so Paul starts off and things are going well, right? They're like, you know, they would have been reading this letter out loud and, you know, in in their community. So somebody would have brought this letter to them. They would have been reading it and like, wow, this is great. Like pat on the back, like sanctified in Christ. Do you hear that? He says, we have all the gifts. We're not lacking in any gifts. We're enriched in every way. Grace, you know, we're full of grace. And then he switches his tone in verse 10. And he doesn't really recover the tone of the intro until the very end. And here's what he does. He says this. I says, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly united in mind and thought. And then he says, my brothers and sisters, some from Chloe's household, have informed me. At this point, I have a feeling that Chloe just got like, everybody's eyes just looked at Chloe. It was like, oh, Chloe, you said you were going to your timeshare. You went to Paul? Like, this, this isn't what we talked about, Chloe. You went and told him what's happening in our church? And so Chloe, and her household, has, has shared with Paul some of the things that are going down in the church. And from here, all Paul does is awkward conversation after awkward conversation. If you've read through first Corinthians, you're like, whoa, let up, Paul. But he's got lots of things to say because he's got lots of things that have been going on that aren't being brought up. And so he starts going through the elephants in the church of Corinth one by one. By one, And he doesn't stop until chapter 16. He just keeps going through these different things that, that, that they're experiencing, that they're going through, that nobody seems to be talking about. And you'll notice, though, as you read through Corinthians, our elephants don't necessarily look the same as theirs. But often they're more similar than we realize. I know that, again, there's some ways that they don't look the same. Like, for example, they had this problem where they were getting drunk at communion. I'm pretty sure that's not possible at ours. And so that was one of the problems. They were also eating food sacrificed to idols. But when you start to get to below the issues, when you start to explore what these elephants really are, you begin to see that maybe we have some similarities to them. And so I've actually, we're gonna, over the next couple of weeks, we're not going to talk about all the elephants that he talks about in 1 Corinthians, but we're going to talk about eight of them. In fact, I've spread eight of them throughout this room, and they're near some of you. I know some of you were like avoiding them, like, oh no, I'm going to get involved, but I'm just going to, one second. So I want to talk about, here's the eight things we're going to talk about over the next eight weeks. Now, don't mark which ones you're going to skip. I know some of you are like, okay, skip week, skip, skip week three and seven. You know, I don't want to be here for those. We'll leave those. I'll listen to those on the podcast at home from, my, from safety. All right, but who's got number one? Who's got non-discipleship somewhere near you? Okay, Brad has got number one back there. So non-discipleship, another way of, about that, we're going to start this one next week, so this one doesn't count as one of them, where spiritual immaturity, we're going to talk about that. We're actually going to start in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And basically what would have been happening is people were not growing spiritually. They, were, they became Christians. They were showing up at church every week until they died. And that's the end of the story. And he's like, this is kind of awkward. We need to talk about that. Who's got divisions? Number two. Anybody? Oh, it's right here. Okay, number two is divisions. And there's basically what's happening is some people are big fans of Paul. Other people are big fans of another preacher named Apollos. And they're beginning to see some factions develop in the church and some divisions form. Instead of uniting themselves around Christ, they're beginning to unite themselves around personalities, which we tend to see not just in our church, but in the church all over. And in addition, even today, he might begin to talk about the way we've created denominations as well and have divisions in the church. Who has sexuality? I don't want to know who actually has sexual. I don't want to know who. There we go. Okay. Sorry for anybody who had kids sitting next to that one and asked, "What is this word?" Um, So that one again, we're going to talk about who are you? Who are you allowed to sleep with? Who are you not allowed to sleep with? What does the Bible have to say about that? Who has marriage and divorce? All right, way in the back, number four. So this one, again, we're going to be talking about Corinth was, their big question about marriage was, are we still allowed to have sex now that we're Christians? So that was their question. We're going to talk about that question and a couple other ones as well. And he gets into divorce a little bit. Who has singleness? All right. And so singleness, again, he begins, he's asked, people are wondering, is single, can I be single? Is that a viable and healthy way to be a Christian? Or is singleness just a step to marriage? And so he talks about that. Who has freedom? Do you just literally have freedom or do you have... Oh, you have the elephant. Okay. And so freedom in this context is about what am I free to do as a Christian? And what if the Bible permits us to do something as a Christian, but the person sitting next to me doesn't think the Bible permits us to do that. And we're trying to figure out what does it look like to be a community in that case? Who has uh, the one that says women? All right. That one's way in the back. I hid that one back there. And so that one, again, is talking about what's the role of women in the church? and is the church historically responsible for holding women back in society or what is the what is the relationship between church and women and finally who has spiritual gifts It's hidden somewhere out there. I don't know. It's out there somewhere. One of the kids might have wandered off with it after first service. There's a chance. Um, But that one, again, is about what, you know, he spends a lot of time talking about speaking in tongues and prophecy. And what is all that about? And what does it mean to be a church that has the full, all the spiritual gifts active in the life of the church and isn't elevating some above the rest? And throughout this letter, he just begins to address all of these different elephants. And he doesn't, he doesn't, he's not afraid of them. And he just jumps into all these uncomfortable conversations. Again, the things that everybody knows about, the things everybody's aware of, but nobody wants to acknowledge or talk about. Paul becomes the one who starts the conversation, who gets the conversation rolling so that we can start talking about it as well. But the issue is that is sometimes we don't end up talking about the problems. Sometimes we don't talk about these topics or these issues that are things that are, might be uncomfortable for some of us. And in fact, if Paul hadn't written that letter to Corinth... I wonder what might have happened to some of those elephants in the church. So I want to talk about four things as we're, kind of, as we're continuing. Four things that kind of happen when we don't talk about the elephants in the church. First one is this. Is the longer elephants are ignored, the larger they grow. The longer elephants are ignored, the larger they grow. I spent a long time this week... Um, not a long time—an hour on YouTube watching videos of elephants, and they're great. Uh, I encourage you to go waste a binge an hour of your life on elephant videos. Somehow, I ended up from like like Planet Earth's elephant special to baby elephants playing around in the mud, which is really cute. And then I ended up on a video of a panda sneezing, which was amazing. I, I encourage you to find that one. YouTube is a is a is a scary place. And but the thing about elephants, right? They start small. They're very cute. They're fun when they're playing around in the mud. But then they get bigger and they grow. In fact, at the Pittsburgh Zoo, we have African bush elephants, which are about 13,000 to 18,000 pounds. Um, Those things are pretty big. And what ends up happening, though, is when we avoid uncomfortable conversations early, they become more and more, it's a cycle of becoming more and more uncomfortable. Because those conversations tend to get worse and worse. And the problems tend to grow until they become completely unmanageable. I an experience once. There used to be a coffee shop down the street from us called Affogato. We called, we called it A for short because it had a big A on the side. And it was near um, the family dollar over here. And I used to go there. I was a regular. I prided myself in being a regular, regular of this coffee shop. And there was another regular there. Uh, we'll call him Jim. And Jim uh, constantly thought my name was Justin. My name is not Justin. It is Austin. But he constantly thought my name was Justin. And the first time he called me Justin, I was like, "It's fine. He'll he'll hear somebody else say Austin and correct himself." I don't want to, I don't want to announce this. You know, it's like when somebody has food on their shirt, and you're like, or on their mouth and face, you're like, "I better not talk about this." But then an hour later, they're like, "Wait." Food was on my face for an hour. This is what was happening. And so I realized he didn't know my name. And then the next week he called me Justin again. And I was like, oh boy. Um, But I'm I'm like real shy, real introverted and timid. I don't want to talk to him about it. And so I let it go another week. And I said, surely he will hear someone else call me Austin. He definitely did. Still called me Justin. And I, at this point, it was three weeks in and we went the next three years he just called me Justin. And I didn't correct him. Because it got more and more uncomfortable when you let somebody call you the wrong name or you have something on your face and you're not talking about it. It just becomes worse the longer you avoid the conversation. And so what is happening again in Corinth is they were probably ignoring some of their problems. They were like, yeah, it's not that bad. He just got drunk once at communion and then it's happening every week. Or it's, it's not bad we just, you know, ruined somebody's faith once time, but then it's happening a lot. And so there are these problems that maybe started small and would have been easy to get rid of in Corinth, kept growing and growing and growing until they were very difficult to deal with and they had to call in the help. So Paul came in and decided to do something about it. So the set, first thing is that the longer elephants are ignored, the larger they grow. Second thing is this. Elephants create an elephant-sized gap in every relationship, Elef, especially in the church. Elephants create an elephant-sized gap in every relationship. I would have loved to have big elephants in here, but I can only find tiny paper mache ones from Pat catans But the idea, again, is elephants, tend to, they can be 18 to 21 feet in length, 10 feet high, it's pretty big, right? And so if you're trying to talk to somebody, and there's this elephant there, right, it creates some distance between you and that person. But it's the same thing in real life. If there's an uncomfortable conversation that nobody wants to talk about or something that needs to be had, and we're avoiding it. What happens is you have relational distance with everybody in your life. You can't get close to anybody because you're afraid that you'll get get past the surface level and you have to start talking about deep issues. And so we do what Pittsburghers do and we just talk about overcast skies and the stillers for the rest of our lives and we don't ever get deep with anybody because there's this elephant sitting there and we don't want to talk about it. And so that happens in the church all the time. That we have these things that are sitting in the pew, that are sharing pews with us and that are creating distance between us and other people who are part of this community because we're afraid of uncomfortable conversations and making things awkward. So longer. Elephants are ignored. The larger they grow, they tend to create an elephant-sized gap in every relationship. The third one is this. You can't make room for visitors if you're leaving room for elephants. You can't make room for visitors if you're leaving room for elephants. Elephants take up lots of space, and they're taking up space where a visitor could be sitting when we refuse to have uncomfortable conversations about the problems that we see, there's a good chance that, the, that outsiders and unbelievers can see those problems, can see those issues, can see those topics, and they're like, dude, I'm good. I'm going to stand outside the glass and watch you guys work this one out on your own. I don't want to get trampled in there. And so we tend to stand on the outside. The issue is, again, elephant exhibits are entertaining from outside the glass, but nobody wants to go inside. And that often happens with the church. And so everywhere you see an elephant in this church right now is really somebody, a place that somebody could be. In fact, elephants are are worth, not worth. Elephants are the same weight as about 65 people. And so I was imagining just a little bit this week, what if every elephant that we aren't talking about in our church is preventing 65 people from coming into the life of our church? What if the reason that churches often stay small is because they refuse to deal with problems that would be uncomfortable to deal with? And so I was just thinking a little bit more about that. And so Paul has this, has this issue as well. There's later, we're going to talk a little bit about this one in a few weeks. There's this moment where he begins to address sexual immorality. And one of the reasons he addresses it, he says it's embarrassing you in front of the outsiders. He says this. He says it's actually reported, again, everybody's looking at Chloe. It's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that even the pagans do not tolerate. What's Paul's issue here? It's not just sexual immorality. The issue is that when outsiders are looking at your church, they're like, we don't even do that stuff. And what ends up happening is the church ends up embarrassing itself in front of the very people that it's trying to reach. Well, this happens again in a, few, a, a chapter later where there's this issue where pe- there's these divisions forming and people are taking each other to court. And they're having non-Christians work things out that Christians should be able to work out. And then it said, he says, but instead one brother takes another to court. And what? What's the problem? And this in front of unbelievers. He said, it's hurting your witness. He says, you guys are talking about Jesus, but all they can see is the elephant in the room that you guys aren't talking about, that you guys aren't dealing with. And again, he starts these uncomfortable conversations. Again, the issue is that every elephant in the church is a place where a visitor could be sitting. And the fourth thing is this, is that the more elephants you let into the church, the more likely it is for someone to get squashed. are squished. There's an online debate about which of those words is right. I'll let you guys figure that one out on your own later. But the more likely it is that someone gets squashed. Squashed. When you let elephants roam free, it's, it's one thing to keep an eye on one elephant. It's another thing to try to keep an eye on a whole herd of problems and issues. And it isn't long before someone gets trampled by them. Um, there's, a, there's another situation later in 1 Corinthians where that the Christians are eating food sacrificed to idols. And we'll get more into that in a couple of weeks. But the the core of the issue is this, is that they were permitted to eat food sacrificed to idols. There's this whole ritual that involved non-Christians, pagans sacrificing food to idols. But then that food went for sale on the market. And the Christians were like, dude, did we get a great price on this this meat? Can we eat it? And And Christians are like, yes, because we know idols aren't real. And so it's okay. But there were new Christians who were like, wait, we still think idols are real. We still think these things are real. And so they were very uncomfortable with the fact that these more mature Christians were eating food sacrificed to idols. And what ended up happening is it ended up ruining the faith of some of the newer believers. He says this later about this issue. He says, So this weak brother or sister, which is his way of saying a new believer, for whom Christ died, just like he died for you, is destroyed by your knowledge. In other words, got trampled because of this elephant that you guys weren't dealing with. In the end, people get squashed. They leave the church, they leave the faith. And sometimes we let them head down a road that we know is bad for them because we're afraid of having an uncomfortable conversation on the front end. Sometimes we have people, and I've had this happen, and I've heard stories of this, where people have come back from from going down a a pathway of destruction, and they come back and they say, Why did nobody stop me? Why did nobody talk to me about this? And the answer, if we're honest, is it was just too uncomfortable. It was too awkward. And so that's what happens all the time when we let elephants stay in the church. So again, the longer elephants are ignored, the larger they grow. Elephants tend to create an elephant-sized gap in every relationship, that kind of relational distance. You can't make room for elephant, or visitors if you're leaving room for elephants. And the more elephants you let into the church, the more likely it is for someone to get trampled or squashed. And it's easy to think that by avoiding uncomfortable conversations, that we're actually protecting our communities. It's easy to think that if we just avoid awkwardness and if we avoid making things uncomfortable, we're actually doing some kind of good for our community. We're actually making us a better community by not talking about things that are uncomfortable or might make someone feel awkward. And so, but in, the re- in the reality is, is, we're actually threatening the very sustainability of our community when we don't talk about things that are awkward and uncomfortable but that are necessary to be talked about. When we ignore the elephant in the room, it can actually create more problems than it solves. And so that's why Paul begins to address these things. And in fact, he reminds them of why he's bringing all these things up. If we go to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, he says this. He says, I'm writing this to you not to shame you. In other words, not to make you feel bad, not to ruin your life, not to make your life worse, not to wreck your community, but to warn you as my dear children. Again, he sees himself as a father of this church. He's, he's caring for them. He loves them. He's worked a lot to get them to where they are. And now he sees them going off in all these weird directions because they're not talking about the elephants in the room. And so he talks about them. He brings this stuff up. Why? Not to make them, not just to make them uncomfortable, not just because he loves being antagonistic, not just because he loves bringing up awkward situations, but because he wants to warn them. The other word for that is admonish. Everyone say admonish. He wants to encourage them. He wants to um, help them continue to grow in their faith. And what he's realizing that it's, if he doesn't bring it up, nobody's going to talk about it. And so he brings it up not to shame them, but to warn them. It can be easy to get defensive sometimes when you're reading the Bible and you, you read something that the Bible says and you're like, man, that, that doesn't sit well with me. And so you just, you just don't even worry about interpreting it. We just move on. I've been in that place before. You know, I'm reading through the Bible again and there are parts that make me uncomfortable. And it's easy to just kind of skip that and move on and get defensive and say, that's not me. And we sort of justify ourselves. Or when you're in a discipleship community or a small group, and somebody brings up something in your life, and you know you can tell they're trembling because they're afraid to bring it up with you, and they bring it up with you and they talk to you about it, and then you get defensive and we avoid it because we're afraid of those uncomfortable conversations. Or in the church, when the pastor begins to talk about something that's uncomfortable from the Word of God, and we you know we leave. Or we you know I know I get angry emails. You know I love emails by the way after sermons, whether angry or not angry, they're, they're just a lot of fun. And but the, the idea again is that what happens is we get defensive. We get worried. We start to justify ourselves. But what Paul is saying, he's like, look, I'm not doing this to shame you. We get defensive when we think somebody's doing something to shame us. He says, I'm doing this to warn you, to encourage you, to bring you back, to show you what you were made to be, to help you be the church you were called to be from the beginning. Not to ruin your life, but to make it. Not to ruin your community, but to make it better. That's why kind of bringing this together One of the things that I believe is that the secret to community, the secret to a healthy church, is embracing uncomfortable conversations rather than avoiding them. The secret to community in a healthy church is to embrace uncomfortable conversations rather than avoid them. It's easy to let elephants roam around the church. It's easy to um, avoid uncomfortable topics. But in the end, if we want to be the community God has destined us to be, the answer is not ignoring the elephants, but naming them. Another way to say that is is you can't tame what you haven't named. You can't tame what you haven't named. And what Paul does in 1 Corinthians is he begins to name the elephants so that we can figure out what we as a church can do about them, even today. The only way to grow spiritually and numerically as a church is by dealing with the elephants in the church, by having uncomfortable conversations. But one of the things I love about this church is we have guts. We're not afraid of uncomfortable conversations. We don't leave when somebody offends us. We sit through it. We stick through it. I've seen that for so many of you who have been here for a long time and had a lot of uncomfortable conversations. But we're going to have a bunch of those over the next eight weeks. And so we're going to have, again, eight of these, these, we're going to talk about eight of these elephants over the next eight weeks, starting next week. Following the lead of the elephants, Paul calls out in his first letter to Corinth. And our hope is that as a church, we become even better at dealing with uncomfortable conversations and that we get some uncomfortable conversations rolling and we can create a culture in this church where we aren't afraid of naming the elephants in the room. Thanks for listening. If that teaching moved you or left you with questions, let us know by sending a message to hello at church, And be sure to subscribe to this podcast for a new teaching from us every single week.